God's word in Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, would you allow this time, these words to be what we just read, that we would be filled with your Spirit, that we would be people who are shaped to be like you, that we would use our time in a way that would honor you, that would be good for us and those around us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. When well, 2021, my brother's family and ours took a trip to Zion National Park in Utah. The scenery there is incredible, and there's some spectacular views. But one of the best views and scenes comes from the top of a spot called Angel's Landing. It's one of the most popular hikes, not just in the park, but in the United States, and it leads to a lot of people trying to go up it. Even though we got up at 6 in the morning, we were at the trailhead by 7, at the toughest section by 8, we still ended up waiting in long lines of people to get up to the top. The problem is that as you hike at many spots, you're walking along a ledge where only one person can get past. Along the edge, they often have chains that you hold onto, so many that they tell you to wear gloves before you go because you'll get blisters from holding onto chains for so much. And it's not just a, a ledge, but there's a thousand feet off the ledge. And so you have to be very careful. You have to watch where you go. Now, if no one was on the trail, you could probably make it up in 30, 45 minutes. It's not that bad. But with all the people on the trail and the long sections where only one person can go, and you have to wait for a group to come down or go up, it takes about an hour and a half. And sadly, tragically, almost every year, someone gets impatient and thinks, I can just get around them real quick, and they fall to their death. Thankfully, we were surrounded by strangers who were cautious with us, with two dads who were saying, watch out, slow down, don't do that, and teenagers who wanted to go quicker. But thankfully, we made it up, obviously, safely and back down. But that's because we knew the danger. Every single step, we made sure to put it in a safe location. And that's what Paul is calling us to here this morning. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. Every single step of our life, we want to take it knowing that we're on the precipice of danger. And it's not just here, but throughout Ephesians, Paul has used this metaphor of walking. So I want to have a little bit of a longer introduction showing this. And then we're going to show one of the ways Paul tells us to walk. So flip back to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, because it's here that he began this metaphor of our walk. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 2, he says, And you were dead, and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. You know, before we came to trust in Christ and repented of our sins, we walked in the way that the world around us walked. It was about us our desires, and in a way that was against 
God. Yet look at Ephesians 2, verse 10. For after we're saved by grace, Paul adds, for we, is, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, God has planned steps for every single one of our journey that has good works littered along our path. Good works that we are to walk in. Well, Paul will continue for the rest of chapter 2 and then chapter 3 talking about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, he transitions. It's interesting, we've mentioned this earlier when we were in those sections. In the first three chapters, there's not a single command. But then in chapter 4 to the end, there's over 40. Paul first focuses on what's true for us in Christ, and then he turns to tell us what we should do because we are in Christ. And how does he begin that? We'll look at Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We've been called to Christ and to live like Christ in this world. So that's going to lead to a different walk, a different lifestyle. He'll say it negatively down in chapter 4. Look at verse 17 where he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. There are actions, there are attitudes that you should go, you know, I would live like that, but that's the way everyone in the world lives like. And I need to live in a different way. I am someone who is a child of God. He then said it positively in chapter 5 verse 2. And... Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Since we've been saved because of God's love, that should then mirror our walk, our lifestyle, that we live a life of love to others. Not just sentimental feelings, but a life of sacrifice for the good of those around us. And we've come to know that God, God's love, and so not only do we walk in love, but notice how he describes it in verses 8, or verse 8. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walking in love is walking in the light. Walking in a way that is good, that is true, that is beautiful. And now for the last time, in verse 15, Paul will use this metaphor of walking. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as Wise. And Paul introduces this idea of wisdom, an idea that's throughout Scripture. It's the idea that there's more than knowledge that's needed in life. Yes, you need to know things, but you need to know how to apply them. It's knowing how do we take the truths of God's Word and who He is, and how do we live that out today in 2023? As someone has kind of humorously said, the difference between wisdom and knowledge is like this. Knowledge is knowing that tomato, a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that you don't put it in a fruit salad. Now, sadly, many Christians have a control panel of their life that is like a light switch that is only on or off. Their only categories is, well, is it wrong or is it right? And if you challenge them on an action, they go, well, is it wrong? As that's the, the only options that you can consider, wrong or right. But instead, Scripture shows we should have a light switch that has a dimmer function on it. Yes, you can have it on or off, but then in between, there's all these options that in some categories 
Oh, you want that quiet evening? Turn the lights down. Oh, you're trying to read that book? Turn the lights up. Different contexts call for different levels of the light. You know, one action might be good, another might even be better, and a third might be best. You know, an action might be allowable, but not be wise. And all this to say that we as Christians must learn not just to be moral, but how to be wise people. And Paul then gives three contrasting ways to walk wisely. You can kind of see these as they're highlighted, because verse 15 is kind of an umbrella. Look carefully how you walk. Not as, well, look carefully as you walk. That's the umbrella. And then he gives three sets of contrasts. The first one is in verse 15. Not as unwise, but as wise. That's the first one. Or verse 17. Not to be foolish, but to understand what the will of the Lord is. And then verse 18. Not getting drunk with wine, but being filled with the Spirit. So there's these three contrasts. How do we walk in a way that pleases God? Well, you live wisely. You know God's will and you're filled with the Spirit. Now, we'll only have time, no pun intended, to about, talk about that first one today. How do we use our time to honor God? And then over the next couple of weeks, we'll discuss what does it look like to know God's will? What does it look like to be filled with God's Spirit? But today, to look at our time, I want us to consider three things. First, foolish usage. Second, some wrong implications we want to avoid. And then third, and lastly, some timely exhortations. So first, foolish usage. You know, the first aspect of walking carefully is to use our time wisely. You know, when Paul says here, make the best use of our time because the days are evil, he's referring to this general age we live in. It's like he said in Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 that God sent his son Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. You know, meaning this age that has sin in it. And we're going to be delivered from it to an age forever where there will be no sin. Where we will have our inheritance with God that will be imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Yet, we've seen from Ephesians, not everyone will enjoy that inheritance. For Paul also warned, as we read earlier in chapter 2, 1 through 3, that we're dead spiritually. That because of our sins... We're under God's wrath. And yet there is hope because God sent his son Jesus to take that wrath so that he could take our punishment for us. And rather than the punishment we deserve, we could have his love. And since we know that we are in God's love, that should shape how we live in regards to our time. You know, every one of us has the same 60 seconds in every minute. We all have the same amount of time on Sunday, September 3rd, 2023. Are we going to use the time we're given today in a wise or foolish way? Well, Jesus gave us a parable to help us understand, well, what does it look like to use our time in a wise or foolish way? So flip over to Luke chapter 12, because there we're going to see Jesus' words about how to use our time wisely. Luke chapter 12, we will begin reading in verse 16. Again, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 16. 
There, God's word says, and Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared whose will they be so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward god and just like the old testament jesus is saying a fool is someone who lives without reference to god you see this man has his whole future planned out he has his plans he even says i have many years And yet God, though, determines the very night, that very night, that he'll die and give an account. Thus, what's going to happen to all these storehouses that he has stored up? He won't get to enjoy them. The only thing that will be taken with him is his soul, not a single possession. I heard the story of three apprentice demons who are going out on their first assignment, they're interacting with the devil. What should we do, and how should we trick these humans? And the first one says, well, I know. I'll tell them there's no God. And Satan replied, well, that's no good, because the knowledge of God is written on their hearts. The second one responded, well, I'll tell them there's no hell. And Satan responded, that's even more hopeless, because even in life, they have experienced the remorse of hell. The third chimed in, I'll tell them there's no hurry and satan eagerly said go and tell them that and you will run them by the millions no hurry i can do it tomorrow yes one day i'm going to get serious about god but i have a few more things that i want to do to really enjoy life ecclesiastes 7 2 says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting for This is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The Bible is clear. Time is linear. It's not circular. When you die, you won't be reincarnated. You won't get a second chance. Hebrews 9.27 succinctly says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And that that judgment will lead either to an eternity with God in joyful bliss or an eternity without God in sorrowful punishment. Thus, while you live only once on this earth, you will live for eternity. However, the length of our time on this earth is appointed by God, not by us. Jesus himself said, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Your days... Our hours, our minutes, they're numbered. We have no idea what they are, but God does. Thus Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom doesn't know the number of our days, but it knows the one who does and lives joyfully and seriously in regard to him. When we lived in Ohio... We had a friend and church member, Kathy Ziklow. She was in her early 50s, and one day she went over to her daughter's house. She had to go to work. Her daughter did. She got the kids ready for school, 
went and took a nap before the youngest one woke up. And Kathy never woke up again. She died in her sleep. Some of you may remember five or six years ago, a young airman was here, Ryan Robinson. He was getting training at Shepherd. And while he was here, his father was uh, in San Antonio, where I grew up. I was actually friends with their family. He was a medical professional, prime of his life. And one night, he heard a noise downstairs. He went down, and as he went to protect his family, he was shot and killed. You know, he went to bed that night thinking any other night. Yet he didn't make it till the next morning. In my first semester of college, Rebecca Miller was my biology lab partner. It was only our second week of biology labs, and she was excited because she was going to go skydiving. I never saw her again because her plane crashed as she went skydiving. 18 years old, healthy, vibrant, and yet in a moment her life ended. And I'm sure if we went around the room, many of you could recount similar stories of people who thought, I have years ahead of me. I mean, I'm 18 years old. I'm in college. I mean, I probably have 60, 70 years. And yet that moment, her life was called and she was taken to God. And yet, sadly, though we can all recount stories like this, we still live like the foolish man in Jesus' parable as though we have more time. Now, notice what Jesus didn't condemn. Jesus didn't condemn him for having wealth or land. Jesus didn't critique him for having a windfall of crops or money. The condemnation doesn't come from planning how to use those resources. All of those things, in fact, exemplify biblical wisdom. In Proverbs, we're told to be like the ant and store up for the future. God normally blesses godly people like David or Job or Solomon, Abraham, with wealth. Jesus' condemnation is not for having wealth. It's not for storing up. His condemnation was that he lived a life oriented only for himself. My crops, my barns, my future. You see, he wasn't using his time for God, and so Jesus called him a fool. And yet, sadly, I'm sure some people here, and if not here, definitely throughout time, go, okay, I get it, Pastor. I need to go home, and I either need to be reading my Bible, or I need to be doing something spiritual. Probably working, praying, giving money to missions, or something like that. Need to clean out all of my non-Christian books, and make sure I'm always serving God. And yet, that is a wrong implication. So let's consider that next. Some wrong implications of what I'm saying. You know, some... When they hear this call to redeem the time, as some of your translations may say, or use your time wisely, and then they consider, look, we're in a spiritual battle. It is true. Heaven or hell is at stake. They then say, well, we need to only be focusing on spiritual issues. And yet, that's a problem for two reasons. One, it misunderstands what spiritual means. And two, it neglects the rest of Scripture. To see this, look look back five chapters to Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 31 through 35. You know, in this section, Jesus is rebuking the people of Israel. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter who would have come to you. You basically don't want to repent to come to God. You want to lead your own life. And notice how he says this. Luke chapter 7 will begin in verse 31. Jesus says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? 
They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come to you eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, well, look, John the Baptist came to you as a serious, as said. He went out in the wilderness. He didn't eat anything wonderful. He ate locusts and wild honey. He wore weird clothes. He was all about God. And what did y'all do? Oh, no, we don't want to follow that. And then he contrasts, but Jesus came and he went to parties. He went and had fun. He did all these things that they could say he was a drunkard. And he wasn't. It was a false accusation. But they could accuse him of this. And they go, oh, no, no, we don't want that either. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, you could have it very serious, or you could have it very pleasurable, and you still don't want to turn. But my point in bringing this up is that Jesus is not praising one or condemning the other. He's saying both could be good. Maybe God's calling you to a John the Baptist lifestyle. Well, then great. Maybe God's calling you to be in this situation, this area, more like Jesus. Well, then great. You see, Jesus did not conclude, well, there's a spiritual war going on, so we shouldn't do such thing as parties. That's not a very spiritual thing to do. In fact, because there was a spiritual battle, Jesus went to parties. You know, Paul even warns in 1 Timothy 5, of, sorry, 4, 1 through 5, that there will be people who profess to be Christians who go around saying, well, there's things you shouldn't do. You shouldn't get married. You shouldn't eat these foods because we need to basically be serious for God. And yet, he says in contrast, God has given us those things to give thanks to Him, to enjoy God's good gifts. Ecclesiastes even tells us there are time for all things, even, if we can believe it as Baptists, a time to dance. Thus, Christians can and should enjoy good food, amusement, parties, and even vacations. In fact, the relaxation and the rest might make you better in the battle. You know, the other problem with the view that, look, because this thing is true, because we have to redeem the time, because we're in a spiritual battle, so we can only do spiritual things, the other problem is that it misunderstands what is spiritual. In this view, you're doing spiritual activities when you have this in your hand. When you're watching a movie that has a very distinct Christian message, when you're working to give money to missions, or doing something overtly religious. And yet the Bible talks about how you can parent. You can do your job. You can take care of your finances. Every part of your life, not just the so-called spiritual parts, can be done for the Lord. Thus, yes, there are distinctly spiritual things, but we should not downplay the other parts. In fact, there is good in interacting with non-Christians and non-Christian ideas. You may not know this, but three times in the New Testament, Paul quotes from non-Christians. In Acts 17, 28, he quotes from a poem of a guy named Aratus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 33, he quotes a play by a man named Menander. And in Titus 1, 2, he quotes from a writing of a non-Christian prophet, Epimenides. In other words, Paul knew the poetry, he knew the plays, he knew the religious writings of non-Christians. And likewise, we can watch a movie, 
We can read a book. We can read non-Christians and still honor God in those and not be wasting time. The issue, now I'm not talking about sin here, but it's something that's not a clear sin. The issue is not so much what you're doing, but why you're doing it and who you're doing it for. And this is a challenge because basically what I'm saying is we don't all need to live exactly the same. And that's really hard because we want to be able to justify our lives and say, I'm leading the right life. And yet, what you should do for God might look exactly different than the Christian in the pew in front of you or behind you or chair, since we don't have pews. You know, they may, because they want to serve God, go be a public school teacher. You, because you want to serve God, might be a homeschool teacher. You, because you want to serve God, might use your break at work to read your Bible. And they, because they want to serve God, might play cards with their co-workers during their break at work. Each one of them can be serving God. You know, you can do all of those things in a way that pleases God. You know, some people honor God doing the Bible study and playing cards, and some people dishonor God doing the Bible study or playing cards. We can't give a right or wrong. We're called to a life of wisdom. Again, it's not so much what you do, but why you're doing it and who you're doing it for. You may have heard this story before, but I think it kind of helps paint it well. Many of you have heard of Martin Luther, the great reformer who reminded the church that Scripture alone is the foundation to know God and His will. It's by grace alone that we're saved, through faith alone in Christ alone. And he reminded us of these great truths. And yet in that, he too had to fight against religious zealots. One day, a young, very vigorous, strong, young Christian man said, Brother Martin, if you knew Jesus would return tomorrow, what would you do today? I wonder what you would say. Okay, Jesus is returning tomorrow, so what am I going to do today? Luther replied, I would plant a tree. Dumbfounded, the young man replied, Why in the world would you plant a tree? Luther's response was simply, Because that I was, that's what I was planning to do today. You know, you can do anything, even planting a tree to God's glory. You know, living each day for God just means doing everything for God. That might mean that you mow your yard for God, or you sit back and watch someone else mow your yard for God. You enjoy the fruit of their labors. It might mean using your time to work, or it might mean using your time to relax. It might mean reading the Bible. It might mean reading a fiction book that you find enjoyable. Again, using our time for God doesn't necessarily mean doing a certain task, but rather doing each task for God to the best of your ability. And let me briefly add, redeeming the time does not mean having constant activity, as though if you're sitting for two seconds not doing something, you're not redeeming the time. I know a man who, while he brushes his teeth, reads from a systematic theology book. Now that is definitely a good way to use your time. But you're not sinning if you have used all those wasted hours of teeth brushing, thinking about nothing, or letting your mind meander. Yes, God calls us to work, but as we've seen, He also gives us food, parties, marriage, relationships, and He even gave us one of His Ten Commands, remember the Sabbath day, to rest, to relax, to re create, recreation, restore yourself. 
And yet, while we say all those important caveats, wrong implications, we do still need to hear this challenge. Because sadly, we often live like David Cassidy. If you've not heard of him, he was made popular by a TV show in the 70s called The Partridge Family. And his last words of his life are quite tragic. The last words he ever spoke were, so much wasted time. And what a tragic way to die. To look back over your life and say, so much wasted time. So what are you using your time for each day? Do you have any targets you're aiming for? Do you have a drive and goal of your life? You know, as the saying goes, if you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every single time. Your life of joy, meaning, and purpose is a life that uses your time for God, whether working or relaxing, whether reading your Bible or, again, that favorite work of fiction. But with that being said, let's consider three common areas or ways we often use our time in a good way to the neglect of something better. First, we can let the time for making and eating of food and drink consume our time. Paul warns in Philippians 3 of people who appear to be Christians, but then he describes them as enemies of the cross. Now, boy, that's pretty strong, enemies of the cross, but notice how he describes them, Philippians 3.19. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. Well, that's an odd description, their God is their belly. Now, I love a good meal. Maybe, hopefully this doesn't strike me down in your books. I enjoy the Food Network. Sometimes, when we have a kitchen, we make elaborate meals. Yet, we have to watch out that the enjoyment of God's good gift of food and drink doesn't consume us. You know, do you have a refined palate that can distinguish every single ingredient, but you can't find most books in the Bible? Do you know how to make dense, rich sauces? You can cook that meat to perfection, but you wouldn't have the first clue how to help anyone get food from God's Word. Again, I'm not talking about right or wrong. God's given us food to enjoy, but we have to consider that's good, but there's something better. Knowing how to eat and feed from God's Word. Are you taking what's better? Second, we can let the time of working out and exercise push out God. 1 Timothy 4, 7-8 Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know, do you make sure never to miss a workout, but you regularly skip time with God? Do you know multiple exercises and ways to stay in shape, but when you come to the Bible, you just kind of flip around because you're like, I don't really know how to get anything out of this. Yes, keep working out. I'm not telling you not to do that, but work out your body and your soul. Know that one's going to last forever, and the other will fade on this earth. As the prophet Isaiah says, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And again, remember what I said in the beginning of only having an on-off switch in our thinking. That something's either right or wrong. Because you might be thinking, this is ridiculous. He's saying it's wrong to work out. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. 
It is a good thing to work out. But I'm rather talking about not right or wrong, but good, better, and best. Your body is good. So exercise, take care of it. But loving and delighting in God is best. So make time for that too. Well, a third aspect of life that wants to steal time from what matters most is experiences and entertainment. Earlier, Ecclesiastes 2 was read for us, and we read how Solomon had every single experience he could ever desire. He had the money and resources so that there was nothing that he could want that he didn't enjoy to its fullest. And yet, remember what he wrote? Whatever my eyes desired, that I did not keep from them. I kept from no my heart no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and that was reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there is nothing to be gained under the sun. Is your pursuing of pleasure keeping you from God? Vacations, parks, theme parks, family, friends, they're wonderful. But they're not best. And are they keeping you from God? Coming home, relaxing, enjoying a show, a movie, watching things online can be good. And yet, the average American spends four and a half hours every day on leisure, and two and a half of those on their tablet, their TV, their smartphone. In contrast, we spend 19 minutes reading. Now, I know we're not all readers, and that's fine on one level, but you can listen to many great books. You can use your mind to engage it, not just to be passive. And one of the best, the best book you can read, the Bible. And now, you know, you can look at this and go, whew, that thing's pretty thick. But if you just listen for 15 minutes a day, just on weekdays, not even counting the weekends, you will listen to the entire Bible in one year. I'm sure most of you spend more than 15 minutes a day just in your car. You know, is enjoying a show good? Yes, it is. But is there something better that will give you a deeper pleasure, a deeper joy in life? You know, to walk carefully in this life, remember that's what Paul's telling us, be careful how you walk. We need that lamp for our feet and that light for our path, which is God's word. And I know some of you might be thinking, but... This is 2023. I mean, we, we don't have time. We're so busy. And yet in my study, I have a group of sermons by a man named Harry Ironside preaching in 1920, 100 years ago. And you know what? They had the same issue in 1920 as in 2020. And they'll have the same issue in 2120 and 2220 that everything wants to keep us from God's word. And it's not that we denigrate those other things. It's that we say those are good, but God has given us something better. So let's enjoy both of them. So a movie, show, video can be good. But do you know those to a much better degree than you know God's word? Can you hear the slightest quote of a movie? And you can finish the whole line. But you hear the slightest part of a verse. And you're like, what's that from? Are you a trivia nerd for Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar, or whatever genre of films, but you kind of draw a blank when you get past the first commandment? Do you know all the stars, all the best players for your sports team, but you kind of draw a big fuzzy blank when you hear the characters of the Bible? You know, again, I'm not saying wrong, good. I'm saying good and better. 
Let's know God's word better than we know our favorite movies. Let's know God's word better than we know our favorite actors or sports stars. Well, how are we going to live wisely in this way? Well, let me finish with some short but timely exhortations. Our last section, timely exhortations. First, we need to consider Proverbs 14, 8. The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to his ways. You know, the wise person gives time and thought to what they're doing. You know, I think one of the best ways to think about time is to think of it in relation to money. You know, a wise person sits down and calculates, okay, this is how much we need for housing. This is how much we need for food. This is how much we need for electricity. And they make a budget. And then after they take care of everything they need, they then go, how much do I have left to go out to eat, to take a vacation, to do the extra things in life? You know, sadly, many people live the opposite way. They get their check. They go out to eat. They go on a vacation. They then pay their bills and they go, well, you know, I never have any money to save or give away. Well, you have to be wise and get ahead of that and go, no, I only have so much money. So I need to first take care of the essentials. I need to take care of everything I need. I need to save. I need to give. God calls me to that. And then, hey, we have some extra. Let's go out to eat. Let's save that for last. In the like manner, that should be how we take care of our time. C.S. Lewis has a very intriguing thought on this. He says, Actually, it's the laziest people who are the busiest. He writes, By lazily abdicating the essential work of deciding and directing, establishing values and setting goals, other people do it for us. Then we find ourselves frantically at the last minute trying to satisfy a half dozen different demands on our time, none of which is essential to our vocation, to save off the disaster of disappointment to someone else. So, Consider your time. What are the essentials in life? Well, we, we have to work. We have to eat. We have to sleep. We need to be with God's people. We need to be in God's word. We need to spend time with family. Well, then after you consider the essentials, what are luxuries? You'll probably find, well, I do have time. A couple hours after work, I could do something. Well, then read a book, enjoy a show, play cards. But first, take care of what's essential don't get to the end of day after day and go, well, didn't have time again today to read my Bible. Get ahead of it and budget or schedule your time for what matters most. Take care of the essentials first and then use the extra for luxuries. Second, though, I think we need to consider this beyond what we normally do. You know, I heard this this week and it really caught my attention. You know, often when we consider redeeming the time, we think, oh, we need to redeem the minutes and the hours. But you know, time has another connotation. We need to redeem the seasons of our life. You know, we are blessed in our church to have toddlers all the way up to people who are into their retirement years. And we can pine for the future or the past. Oh, if life would only be back in college, that was the life. Oh, Man, back when we had kids in the house, that's when life was great. And you can sit there and think about how things were great in the past. Or you can long for the future. Ah, when I'm in high school, that's when life's great. Oh, when I'm out of my parents' house, then life's going to be great. Oh, when I'm married. Oh, when I have kids. Oh, when the kids are gone. Oh, and everything's some other season. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, 
Say not, why are the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You Every season, from infant to the last day of your life, is a gift from God. Every one of those days has blessings and has challenges. But redeem the season you're in. Don't be in this season and go, oh, I can't wait till I get to that season. That's when life is going to be great. God has you in whatever season He does for a purpose. So use this time, whatever it may be in your life, for God's glory and your good. Well, could there be a more timely message for Labor Day weekend? Let us use our time to the fullest. Use it to its full, not as a fool. Whether that time be spent working or relaxing, realize that we have only one life to lead. It will soon be past. Only what's done for God will last. Let's pray. Lord, we have been blessed by you with the time that we have here on earth. Lord, that's different for every one of us. Some may live into our late 90s, maybe even early 100s. Some of us, you may call home early in our life. And yet, Lord, would we, no matter our, if our days are many or few, would we use each one in a way that honors you, that is enjoyable and good for those around us? Lord, thank you that you, the creator of time, entered into it to redeem us, even for all the ways we don't use our time wisely. We love you and thank you for your word that guides us and directs us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.